If you're like me, you've had your fair share of awkward social interactions, especially, at least for me, maybe not for everybody around the dinner table. Sometimes when you're at dinner with people you might not know very well, or you're with dinner with people you're trying to impress, it can be easy to slip up, to say something that you regret, and to have sort of an awkward experience. I'm reminded of one time I went out to eat with a friend of mine. His family invited us out to eat, just me and one other friend of ours. And we were kind of surprised because his family was um, kind of known for being cheap, known for not spending a lot of money. So we went out to eat with them, and that was fine. I respected that. We went out to eat. And as we were ordering, I was very mindful about what I ordered. I didn't want to order something extravagant or anything like that. And we went to Applebee's. Uh, thankfully, there wasn't a lot of extravagant things there. And I ordered something uh, to eat. But my friend next to me, my friend who was invited with me, ordered the most expensive thing on the menu. And I can't remember, it was either a steak or like a rack of baby back ribs. And to top it all off, when the food got there, he didn't even eat it all. He ate probably less than half of it and then sent the rest back to the kitchen, didn't even get a box. And I remember the face, the face is of my friend's parents who invited us out and who were paying for the meal. And I just, I just cringed on the inside. I couldn't believe that my friend had done that. He came from a different place, a different family background. He didn't think anything was wrong with it. But you could tell it bothered my friend's parents, but they weren't going to say anything. And I just remember that awkward interaction, and still every time I go to Applebee's, that's what I think about. And it's not to the same extent, but you have somewhat of an awkward interaction around a dinner table in our text in Luke 14. So I hope you turn in your Bibles there in Luke 14. We're going to use this text to launch off into what's sometimes called the parable of the great banquet, or the parable of the dinner banquet, or uh, just the parable of the banquet. Uh, but there in that context of Luke 14, what was read for us, there's this theme or this motif of the dinner banquet, a dinner banquet, that begins in Luke 13, 29. Notice there in Luke 13, look beginning in verse number 24. And there Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And as we start to see the context of this parable, you see that Jesus first brings up a dinner there. And he describes how a lot of the Jewish leaders, their expectations will be shattered. Because they expect to be in the kingdom, they expect to be reclining at the dinner table, so to speak, in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells them, instead of them being there, what they're going to see is Gentiles. People from all corners of the earth coming and sitting in their place with the people they claim to be their fathers and their prophets and the ones they look up to. And then you have this sort of interlude in chapter 13, 31 through 35, where Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, and it's all tied in. He's weeping over the fact that the very people, his very own people, the people uh, to whom were given the oracles of God and the promises of God and the covenants of God, those are the same people who are now rejecting God's only Messiah. And then in chapter 14, this uh, this theme of a dinner banquet continues. Notice in chapter 14, verse 1, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. 
They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, or has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus is a guest at this man's house to eat dinner and immediately confronts him with something he knows he's uncomfortable with. He says, look at this man and his, uh, his disability. Do you think it's okay to heal him? They won't reply. But Jesus goes ahead and does it because he knows it's not sinful. And then notice in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he's still at this banquet, this dinner, at this successful man's house, and he sees how these people are kind of jockeying for position, how they're trying to prove that their social status is higher to the person next to them by sitting at a seat that's more honored. And he says, that's not the way it should be. Instead of grappling for that honor, the way it works in the kingdom of God is you serve. You sit in the lowest seat. And then if it's uh, appropriate, you're elevated to a higher seat. But then notice verse 12. This is when I think you have the biggest confrontation where, if anywhere, it gets the most awkward. He turns to the man who had invited him. So it was an honor to be invited to a dinner in this cultural context, especially by a man who is a ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus turns to the man who invited him, and notice what he says. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And again, he's saying this to the person who invited him. And then you have somebody who speaks up in verse 15. And I think he's doing something that we've all tried to do from time to time. You ever hear somebody say something, and you think, oh man, that might be taken the wrong way. And then you try to say something to smooth things over. You know, you kind of interject, and you're kind of like changing the topic, or you're trying to reintroduce another something to move on. This is what this man's doing. When when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Trying to change the subject almost. Verse 16, but Jesus says to him, and this is launches off into this parable. We're going to go ahead and read it uh, and see what it says. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, 
that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So you see there that Jesus uses the comment of this man almost trying to smooth over the awkwardness as a springboard for this parable of the great banquet. And before we see the meaning of this parable and some ways it could apply to us, I think it's good that we discuss some of the cultural significance of dinners at that time. For us today, it could be something easy to overlook. Every now and then, we're invited to somebody's house for dinner, and it's still a nice thing. Or maybe we're invited by somebody to go out to eat for dinner, and it's still a nice thing. It shows that camaraderie. It shows that togetherness. Uh, Still today, food and the dinner table can unite people who might have differences. It's a good way to network. It's a good way to get to know people. But back then, it was especially more important. There was a religious significance to a dinner banquet in the kingdom of God for Jews. And in Jesus' day, there was this understanding among the Jews that when the Messiah came, he would initiate a golden age for Israel. And all the faithful Jews would sit at his table and they would feast while their enemies, their political enemies, were destroyed. And they got this idea from Isaiah 25, if you would turn there. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 12. And we're going to see where this idea came from. Why the Jews thought that indeed there would be, when the Messiah came, a dinner banquet that kind of initiated the kingdom of God. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse number 6. And notice this prophecy and what the expectations may have been and how Jesus kind of flips their expectations. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in this place, as straw is trampled down in the dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hand out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortification of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. So that passage kind of was in a lot of the Jewish leaders' minds about what it would be like when the Messiah came. There would be this feast, there would be this big dinner banquet, and the political enemies of Israel would be destroyed. So they had this going on in their minds. Further, dinner was, one of the, most, was the most important meal of the day in the first century. There are many people who would eat lightly throughout the day just to have a big dinner with their friends and their family at the end of the day. And the guests you invited to your dinner and who you were sitting by at dinner said a lot about your own social status, It said a lot about who you were as a person. It said a lot about your priorities. And Jesus was no doubt capitalizing on both the messianic expectation and the custom of the time, but at the same time, he was sort of flipping it. Jesus says the Messiah's kingdom will not be a physical, political kingdom that crushes Israel's enemies. In fact, Jesus says many Gentiles will eat at the Messiah's table with him in place of the Jewish leaders. Remember that in Luke 13, uh, verses uh, 29 and following, as we, as we just had read. And 
Jesus goes on and says the Messiah's, the Messiah's kingdom will be like a dinner banquet, but many will spurn the invitation. Those who you would expect to go instead are going to refuse to go. And instead, the Messiah's dinner banquet is going to be attended by those who you would least expect to be invited to that kind of celebration. While those who you would expect to be there are not able to participate because they're the ones who rejected it. So Jesus uses all of this, this messianic expectation, the cultural view of dinner at that time, all as a springboard to teach these very important spiritual lessons. So what did the parable mean for Jesus' original audience? I think a couple of different things, and then we'll go on for application for us. The context surrounding this help us, helps us understand what's going on. Jesus was, by way of this parable, contrasting the Pharisees' expectations with the reality that God was showing them through Jesus. The Jewish leaders believed that they were right in their separatist ideology. They were right in excluding others from the kingdom of God. They were right in ignoring the common people and seeing themselves as more valuable. And they expected God's kingdom to have a similar structure, right? Just when God's kingdom comes, us, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who control the temple and the money and, and those who have the most pride, we're going to be sitting next to the Messiah when he comes and has his kingdom. But Jesus flips their expectations. Remember, those who were initially expected to come to the banquet, that is, the leaders of the nation of Israel, were too busy with vain tasks to make the dinner. They were too busy, in the case of the leaders of Israel, keeping up their social status to come to the banquet. Therefore, just like God's kingdom, the banquet opens its doors to the forsaken and the ostracized of society. And in the parable, just like in real life, they come willingly and abundantly, while the initial invitation is retracted because it was not respected. And Jesus is condemning the very attitudes of the ones who invited him to his dinner by showing them what the kingdom is really about. It's not about social status. It's not about proving to others how important you are. It's about helping those who need help. It's about humbling yourself before God and seeking to live for him. A couple of applications for us from this parable. In the first place, Jesus' kingdom is still like a dinner banquet. And this is a point I think is easy to overlook, but there's meaning in Jesus comparing his kingdom to a dinner banquet. Notice Jesus didn't compare his kingdom to a funeral procession or to a house foreclosure or to something nobody would have any, would want any part to do with, something that bums you out, something that is depressing. Instead, Jesus says his kingdom is like a dinner banquet. This is a festive occasion of joy. It's an occasion of delight. It's an occasion of fellowship. It's an event people look forward to. It's an event people want to go to. And certainly following Jesus has its challenges, but he didn't come into the world to make it darker and gloomier. He came to bring good news to all, to release those who were in bondage, to heal those who needed healing that he could heal, uh, to help the blind to see, to help those who came to him with leprosy, uh, to sacrifice himself for all. That's why Jesus came. And we should be careful to remember what Christ's kingdom is all about. Sometimes we read that Jesus was the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, from his prophecy in Isaiah. And we imagine that he never smiled, and he never laughed, he never felt any joy, and he never meant to leave any joy behind. But that's not 
the full picture of who Jesus was. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus, he's the champion of children. He's the friend of tax collectors. And he seemingly, at least at times, even had a sense of humor. I'm thinking of when he said, uh, speaks of the man with the plank in his eye. You remember that? I don't think it's, that's hard to kind of hear with a straight face, especially, I think, in the original language. Jesus came so that his people, remember this from John 10, could have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of hope, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of peace, and we ought to act like it. Sometimes if we refuse to accept what God is willing to give us, we walk around just like the gloomiest people on earth. But that's not what God uh, intends. And we're even told in the book of Romans chapter 12 that God's kingdom is one of joy and peace and hope through the Holy Spirit. And it's not the sensual joy, it's not the sensual delight that people were expected to have at dinners during the Roman Empire, but it was a higher spiritual joy, a joy in knowing that you're in God's kingdom and that he blesses you. One brother put it this way, the joys of God's favor, the redemption from sin, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, these are the joys of the Christian that make each day like a feast day. And I know it's hard to always have that in our minds. I know life is still hard. Things still bring us down. There's still trials. There's still temptations. But at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, you've got a seat at the table at God's dinner banquet. And that in and of itself is something people uh, want to experience. That in and of itself something people spurn. But we're blessed to have that seat. And we ought to never take it for granted. Another point of application from this parable is that poor excuses are still made today. There's a couple of excuses that are made. Notice in our text in Luke 14, beginning in verse number 17. At that time, uh, and at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. And I think this is one of the nuanced things about this parable that's easy to miss. They were already invited, and it seems that they had already ex accepted an invitation. But now the servant comes to say, okay, now's the time. And now's when they make an excuse. Instead of denying the invitation, when it comes time to go to the banquet, that's when they say, no, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. So he's telling the people who had already been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Notice the first excuse. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Imagine somebody much higher than you in social status, invites you to a dinner, and you reject to go because you need to go see your field. You can imagine how insulting that would be for the person who spent all that money, spent all that time getting the dinner to go, get, getting the dinner ready to go, and you've already accepted an invitation, and it's time to eat. Sorry, I've got to go check my field out. Pretty lame excuse. And then notice the second one. I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. You already accepted the invitation to the dinner. You know the dinner's today, and you still decide to buy five oxen, knowing that you're going to have to go see them when the dinner's happening. You see again the problem with this person's excuse. And I think that these two excuses, these two excuses, there's little practical difference between them, right? Going to see the field and going to check out the oxen. I think the, the same point can be made from both of these excuses. And really, what we see is that both of these men were too absorbed in their own interests to make it to the banquet. They genuinely believed that they had more important things to do than to enjoy the banquet that was prepared for them. 
They weren't willing to prioritize the banquet, even over really small things, like going to see a field and going to test out some oxen. The sad part is many today still make similar excuses. Many are so focused on this life right now that they are not concerned with the life to come. And we can allow things, if we're not careful, like work, personal business, sports, money, hobbies, etc., to become more important to us than fellowship with God. And my encouragement to all of us is to not allow things that are really infinitely less important than God's kingdom keep you from accepting his invitation to be a part of it. Don't allow things that in the grand scheme of things, when you zoom out and you look at all eternity the best we can, and this little bit of time we have here on earth, don't allow little things here on earth to keep you from enjoying eternity with God. It makes no sense. I think you could even say it's irrational. When you have all the facts at hand, when you know God exists, when you know his invitation, when you know his son has came and died and rose again, and you can have a seat at the table, and you'd rather do something else, even something that is extremely insignificant. None of these things are better than the banquet these men were invited to. And they may seem important at the time, but they weren't. And none of these things were greater than accepting the invitation to be at the banquet. Yet they chose them over that invite. Let that not be said of us. Let's not choose the things of the world over the things of God. Because it's easy to do. It's easy to allow the little things of life, the little even seemingly mundane events, to keep us from seeking to grow closer to God. But we must keep our priorities in check. The third man's excuse has more to do with family ties. Notice what he says. Verse 20, And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And those of us who have wives might know what it's like when your wife says no to something, and you just reply defeated when you have an invitation. You say, I can't make it tonight. Sorry. Wife wanted to watch a movie at home. Can't do it. But I think there's a little bit more than that going on here. It's not just the man saying, look, my wife disagrees that I should go. He thinks he has a really valid reason to not going to this banquet, and instead he's just married a wife. And this is the one that's easy for us to laugh about uh, today, especially in our culture. But in my opinion, this man's excuse is actually maybe the most substantial and perhaps even the most biblical. If you turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5, you'll see a law in the law of Moses about kind of governing this thing when a man has a new, li- a new wife. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse number 5. And notice what the law of Moses has to say about those who are newly married, men who are newly married. Deuteronomy 24, verse number 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. I think that's a really interesting law. I think that's a really... um, I want to say cool law, but I couldn't think of a better word. It's really cool law uh, that God makes provisions for those who are newly married to enjoy time with each other. But I think it's interesting that this man cites a law which was meant, notice the language of that law. He's exempt from military service, and he's exempt from civil duty. But he's invited to a dinner, a banquet, a a festive time, a, a nice outing. And he uses 
almost maybe that law to say, no, I can't make it. And he's kind of abusing it a little bit if that's what's going on. Some have suggested maybe he's even lying and he just says something to get out of the dinner invitation. Maybe uh, there's something else going on there. But I think it comes down to instead of viewing the banquet as an opportunity for joy and as a blessing, he viewed it as an obligation or as a duty. And the result was he supposedly, at least, chose his family over the invitation to have a seat at the banquet. And the one throwing the banquet did not think this was a good excuse. Just like all the other excuses, when the servant came and reported it to the master, it says right there in the text, in verse 21, that the master of the house became angry. None of those excuses were valid to him. To, uh, there were, none of them were valid reasons uh, to, to reject this invitation to come to the banquet. And if we're not careful, just like the first two men who allow the things of the world to get between them and God, we can allow even things in our family to get between us and God. We can allow even things that are easy to justify. This man maybe thought he had scriptural grounding. You know, Deuteronomy 24.5 says, I'm exempt from civil duty. I don't have to come to your dinner. But if we're not careful, we can make those things kind of snowball and get bigger and bigger and drive a wedge between us and God. And I think Jesus, even in the same very context, look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 14. Even in the same very context, Jesus speaks to this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he's talking about the cost of discipleship. And it's not that Jesus is advocating the way we use the word hate, actually, literally hating and despising and being mean towards those who are in our family and to ourselves. He's talking about loving them, even in our own lives, less than we love God, less than we love being a follower of Jesus. And God, just like the master who threw the banquet in this example in the parable, God is worthy of a commitment that transcends a lot of these excuses that are easy to make. God, our creator, the one who sent his son to die for us, he obviously not only demands, but is worthy of a commitment that transcends even my family bonds, that transcends even my business or my work, that transcends even my favorite hobbies and even the things that I prize most. God is worthy of that. Jesus is worthy of that. A last point here of application. I think it's interesting, and we should note it and learn from it, Notice how everyone is invited to the master's banquet and how that parallels to God's kingdom, where likewise everyone is invited. Notice in verse 21 how we already noticed how the master became angry, but notice immediately his response. The servant came and reported these things to his master, then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets, the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, what you've done has been commanded, and there's still room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. This is why, the master says, so that my house may be filled. That's what the master in the parable wants. And God, our Father, wants the same thing. He wants his house to be filled. And that's why everybody's invited. There's an invitation, and it's not contingent upon economic status. It's not contingent upon social status. It's not contingent upon ability. It's only contingent upon willingness to hear the invitation, to respond appropriately to it, and to come into the house and to eat at the dinner banquet. 
The master in the parable wanted everybody who could possibly be invited to be invited. And he made no distinction of place or person. And God still desires for his house to be full and for everybody to be invited. Notice in verse 23, the master says to go out and to compel people to come in. Some translations say to go out and to urge them to come in. The servant at this point is actually actively trying to persuade people to come to this dinner banquet. He's not just saying, hey, there's a thing going on tonight. I'd love to see you there. See you later. He says, you should really consider doing this. Think about how great this would be. This is something that's in your best interest. He sits there and he persuades them and he works with them. He compels them and he urges them to come into the banquet. Just like it's our job as the church to persuade, to urge, to compel others to join the kingdom of God. And just like in the parable, the invitation is universal. It ought to be extended to every single type of person in every single place. Not just a certain class of people, not just people in a certain geographical area, but everybody we can find because the master wants his house full. So everybody is invited. Imagine the side of the banquet in this parable. You've got the poor coming into this nice house, and they've got dirty rags on, their hair's matted up. There's probably dirt on their face if they're men, their facial hair is probably overgrown. And they're coming in the house to eat at the dinner table. And you've got the blind feeling their way around the table without assistance, trying to find somewhere to sit. You've got the impaired coming in on roughly hewn crutches, dragging themselves even maybe inside to eat at this dinner. While the original invitees stand on the outside looking in. And they're in nice clothing. They've got their lives together. And they're unable to join the feast because they have closed themselves out. They loved other things too much. They refused their generous host. They rejected his grace. And now they can't come into the feast. Don't let this be you. Everyone is invited to sit around God's table, but you must accept the invitation. You must stop making excuses and one day realize that you do know enough, that God is good, that his grace is extended to you through his son, that his sacrifice has been made on your behalf, and you can respond to that invitation, have a seat at the table, and be a part of God's kingdom, a kingdom of joy and peace and hope. Many of us are already sitting around that table. But we must remember, we're not just the people around the table, we're also the servant of the master. And just like that servant was told by his master to go out and to compel people, and to go wherever they could to invite people, to urge them to come in to the banquet, we too must have that kind of urgency. We too must take what our master has told us seriously enough to go out and to compel and to urge and to tell people that they're missing out on the greatest blessing, the greatest invitation that's ever been offered. The good, way, the good thing is this is things we can do every single day of our lives. There's people around us we can talk to. We're having an event just in a couple of weeks where we can go out to the lanes and the highways and the hedges and compel people to come to the feasts of the master when we go door knocking 
later in the first uh, Saturday of October. We've got the Friends and Family Day coming up. We can compel, we can urge people to come, to have a seat at the table, and maybe they won't uh, really pay attention, maybe they won't end up responding, but it's worth giving the invitation. It's worth taking the effort to compel them, because you never know who's going to respond. Because at the end of the day, God still wants his house to be full. There's still room, as long as we're doing our jobs, going out, compelling people, inviting people, because God wants his house to be full. If you're here tonight, you're still making excuses for not sitting at God's dinner table. Tonight's the night to change that, to realize that no excuse is worth missing out on what God is offering. And if you feel like you're at a place where you're just not ready to respond, but you want to, we'd love to sit down and study with you. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to help you through that. Maybe you're, as a master in the servant's house, I mean, as a servant in the master's house, you feel like you're not necessarily living out your obligation. I am right there with you. Today is the day to make a change, to go out, to do what God would have us to do, and to glorify him. If you have a need to come forward, please do so while we sing this song.